It's 2 a.m. in Tokyo, 1900 in Cairo, 1800 here in London, and 1300 in Ottawa. You're listening to Monocle 24. Monocle's House View starts now. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. Obviously, I I regret uh, that I did it. It's not about timing. It's about having done something that I shouldn't have done. And I'm really sorry I did. But is this really going to be what Canada's election is about? Also ahead, as climate protests empty classrooms and fill streets around the world, we'll look at whether large-scale demonstrations are still the best means of making a point. We'll also take a look at what we've learned and what is still to come at this year's London Design Festival. The other interesting thing for me is that most of the the talent on display there is fairly unheard of in the broader design world, so you can kind of discover younger names from uh, you know, far-flung parts of the globe. And a dispatch from inside Apple's freshly reopened New York City flagship store as the covers come off the Fifth Avenue Cube. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to today's edition of Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. It usually takes a fair bit for a Canadian election to attract international attention. Specifically, what it takes, as we have been learning, is the emergence of a proclivity for tactless fancy dress on the part of a Prime Minister who built his entire brand on an idea altogether commendable of big-hearted and easygoing inclusivity. Justin Trudeau, for it is he, has now been compelled to admit that he can't recall precisely how many times he wore blackface as an even younger man. He has apologised profusely and doubtless sincerely, but he will be hoping to shift attention to other issues ahead of polls opening on October 21st. Well, joining me now to look at what those other issues might be are a Canadian in London, Monocle 24's Daniel Bache, and a non-Canadian in Canada, our Toronto Bureau Chief Thomas Lewis. Um, We will start, however, with the story of the moment. Um, Thomas, how big a thing has this become as far as the Canadian media is concerned? Oh, it's the only story in town. It's been on the sort of rolling news networks constantly unpicking this story, unpicking notions of racism, the history of brownface and blackface, uh, Justin Trudeau's own record. It's been on every front page, on every website, and still is, and will be, I think, for uh, several days to come, given that we are now only really at the beginning stages of this election campaign before the vote on the 21st of October. Uh, Daniel, so far, Justin Trudeau's only response to this has, in fairness to him, I think, been the only response that he really can give, which is just a continuous, abject, sincere and unqualified apology. But is that going to get him out from under this? Or is this really going to be what the election is fought over? Yeah, I don't think this is going to this one's going to go. This is going to stay with Canadians, I think, for, you know, the, the rest of the next month. He, you know, I'd never seen him the way he was uh, the other night when he was apologizing, when he did that uh, impromptu press conference on the plane. Um, he said he was pissed off at himself, basically, and then went on to he, repeat. He used, yeah. indeed, that exact phrase. Yeah, he? he, listen, in the past scandal with uh, the former justice minister where he was accused of being a bully and forced her to do things that she didn't want to do, um, he, he 
gained that reputation. And that's what the conservatives are trying to use against him now, that he's not really a sincere guy and he can be a bit of a bully and a, and a, and a bit of a hard person to work with. But on, and on that case, he refused to apologize and he was quite bullish about it. In this case, um, he was, I mean, he looked very sorry. And as, as, as we said, he said, he said he was pissed off, but he also then went on to repeat the same line over and over and over again. I know what I did was wrong and I'm sorry. Um, Thomas, as you've both said, this may run for a while yet, but had this scandal not blown up, um, what were shaping as the actual election issues? What was the media focusing on before they were given what to them must have seemed like an absolutely priceless gift? Well, I think what they were focusing on is that this is shaping up to be what seems to be a very close three-way race between the New Democratic Party, uh, the Conservatives and the Liberals. Um, Justin Trudeau's own approval ratings had been on the slide for quite some time. I think what Daniel mentioned about the, the tone of Justin Trudeau's apology is interesting because I think in that previous scandal involving the former Attorney General, I think the message control for someone who has, you know, made his whole premiership basically so far on being so good at controlling a message in some way or another was really pretty terrible. And I think the way he just has very plainly apologised profusely and more than once by this stage, um, I think is actually chiming rather well with lots of Canadians who, some of whom are quite suspicious about the timing of the story, about where it came from. I think when you look at this week on the campaign trail, the big focus were two very key pots of the electorate, if you like. So younger voters, which were instrumental in electing Justin Trudeau four years ago, and elderly voters too. So you've had lots of suggestions of various tax credits for young parents, um, also for elderly voters too when they enter retirement. So I would suggest that those two Uh, those two groups, if you like, will continue to dominate. It's just whether the cloud of this story will allow people to sort of focus on those things or whether this notion, this rather abstract notion in many ways of mistrust of Trudeau will really cloud people's judgments or like colour how they feel about the various issues at play here as the election campaign carries on, I think. Uh, Daniel, as Thomas was correctly pointing out there, Trudeau's ratings were on the slide even before uh, the current scandal emerged. Why is there a single reason why that is the case? I guess if we boil it down to one imaginary voter who voted Trudeau with great enthusiasm and optimism last time, but this time isn't going to, what would have changed their mind? Well, there have been these questions about, is Trudeau the leader that we voted for, the leader that we expected him to be with this previous scandal hanging over him? That's what the Conservatives have been trying to use. And the NDP, the the other uh, opposition party, one of the other opposition parties uh, saying, you know, this isn't the man. Uh, he's not the sincere man. He's not the, the feminist he said he was. And, and that, I think, is, is now even bigger. Uh, Thomas, again, in, he is going to have to think of things to say between now and October 21st other than sorry, though I suspect he's probably got a bit more apologising to do yet, especially if more pictures emerge, as he suggested they might. But that aside, what is he trying to pitch as the accomplishments of his first term? Oh, well, there are, there are numerous accomplishments in his mind that his government, you know, has put into place since they came into office 
four years ago you look at the immigration policies the number of people who have come legally to canada and have enriched their various communities um, across the country i spoke to bill morneau canada's finance minister a few weeks ago and you know the script is fairly tight on what the liberal party um, are stating as their achievements the economy has done rather well and them that is not untrue although the picture is a little bit more patchy at the moment in terms of jobs figures for example um and also so, you know, this type, this idea of, of the message, if you like, of the kind of face that Canada wants to portray to the world as being an open hearted, welcoming, ambitious place that is a, can be a home for people from around the world and for all various kinds of businesses also from around the world, I think will be central to what they try and say. I think when people look at, for example, his main challenger, Andrew Scheer, uh, at the Conservative Party, people still have very big reservations, I think, about the kind of swing in character that that would mean should he win the election and become Canada's next prime minister. Um, it is, you know, those are the kind of things they're trying to stake in the ground in voters' minds as what they've done so far and why they should continue the work into a second term. Um, I think, though, that the recent scandals have really created rather an amorphous sense of mistrust of the Liberal government in many ways. So that be, rather than the details, the thing that colours voters' choices in the weeks to come. Thomas Lewis in our Toronto Bureau, Daniel Bache here in London. Thank you both for joining us. There are a great many empty classrooms around the world today, as millions of those who will inherit the earth take a day off school to protest what is being done to its climate now. The protests are attracting a great deal of attention, which may answer the question coming up, which is, are these protests in and of themselves still the best way to get a point across? Well, earlier I put this and related questions to Carol Walker, political analyst and former BBC political correspondent, and Salma Al-Wadani, the writer, poet, speaker and broadcaster. I began by asking Salma whether or not we've had any better ideas yet, or whether taking to the streets is still as effective as ever. I think it's a really important way to make a political point. And there's an argument, isn't there, that people say that we have social media now, so we don't actually need to be taking to the streets in that way. But I think there is something so powerful about people stopping what they are doing and disrupting their daily lives to say this is important enough that I'm going to disrupt entire schedules. Uh, That social media overlap, uh, Carol, is obviously important. I mean, obviously, a demonstration has always been a media event. One of the reasons that you gather a large crowd of people is not just for the sake of it, but so people such as yourself will report on it. Um, But are they now mostly a means of furnishing an image for wider dissemination? Well, I think there is an element of that. But I think that Selma has an important point that when you see vast numbers, we're expecting to see millions of people led by school children in nations around the world today turning out to voice their concerns about climate change. I think it does force governments to sit up and take notice. And I think we've already seen, certainly in many European nations, countries scrambling to at least appear to be addressing their concerns. And I think that it does make a difference. Now, clearly, there's a very long way to go, but it's interesting that today, for example, the UK has been announcing uh, a whole new 
a bunch of offshore wind farms that they say will provide green energy for some 7 million homes. Clearly, in terms of the global challenge, that is small beer. But I think it is a sign that these sorts of protests combined with what we're seeing across social media, combined with the fact that it is young people who are really raising their voices that's making at least some governments sit up and take notice. Although I would have to add the rider, of course, that when you look at the scale of the global challenge, while you have countries like notably the United States and China still really resisting any efforts to take significant steps to address climate change, um, the extent of the action that's being taken is still pretty short of uh, what's going to be needed to uh, make a significant difference. Salma, demonstrations do obviously attract attention to a cause and they obviously Mm. attract cameras and photographers and reporters to a cause but do we still see much evidence that they actually work in terms of accomplishing their desired end because if we look at some of the biggest ones in recent memory protests around the world against the Iraq war did not stop that from happening protests across the Arab world did not really deliver the hoped for liberal democracy across the region Uh, protests against Brexit have not as yet derailed it Well, what I'll say to that is I fought in the Arab Spring because I'm Egyptian and I was living in Egypt at the time of the revolution. And I took to those streets and protested with fellow country people. And I think they absolutely did make a huge difference. Whatever conversation you want to have about the Arab Spring and the further results of it Mm. afterwards, that's a separate conversation. Would we have been able to bring Mubarak down to a point of resignation had we not all been sitting in those streets for 30 days and sitting in Tahrir Square for 30 days? I don't think so. In that short term, it did accomplish the objective, which was to remove Mubarak. Absolutely, I think it did. I think if we were all on social media and that was it, it wouldn't have had the same impact. Social media helped mobilise the country to come down onto those streets. But I think having people on the streets really forces government like Carol says, to make change. And yes, America isn't making the changes that it needs to, but there are still going to be thousands of people on the street today across the United States that will force them to say, we have to start doing something. And it's interesting to notice that although perhaps uh, those demonstrations which Selma was taking part in, um, ultimately, as you say, you can argue about the long-term effects of the change. But you could look, for example, I did a lot of coverage um, across Eastern Europe and parts of the former Soviet bloc at the uprisings there, which ultimately did bring Mm. about um, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up uh, and establishment of independent states right across um, Eastern Europe, the reunification of Germany and so on. Uh, If you look at the protests against the Vietnam War, they may have taken some time, but ultimately they forced the United States government to rethink its engagement in Vietnam. So, yeah, obviously it's easy to point to circumstances where demonstrations don't necessarily bring about the exact change which many of those who are taking part would like to see. Um, But I think that there's no doubt that despite social media, when you do see really significant numbers out on the streets, as we're seeing today, it does force the politicians in power to sit up and take notice. Yeah, and I think even the point that you mentioned about the Iraq war, that it didn't stop anything, and you're right, it didn't, and I protested in those protests and it didn't stop anything. But it did have longer political implications that so many people in the country had taken to the streets. I think that did play into the public consciousness when they later voted and when they later assessed our government. So I think it They'd has an impact. become a catalyst for other things. 100%. Further down the line. It might not have that immediate effect. Okay, fine, we're not going to war in Iraq, but it 
hugely impacts the party and the government and how the public consciousness is viewing our current government. Uh, Salma, just a, a quick follow-up on Egypt. Of course, mm. uh, the exiled businessman Muhammad Ali has been mounting something of a social media campaign <laughs> to get people out in the streets of Egypt later today mm. to protest against the corruption of the al-Sisi regime. Yeah. Is that likely to go anywhere, do you think? Um, it's difficult because currently Egypt is in such a jaded place to have so much hope from the revolution and then to have that taken away with the kind of government that came in with Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood and then another kind of essentially military regime coming in. They're in a very difficult place. Um, I'm not sure if it's the time right now or it's going to work right now. I want to say yes, absolutely. And everyone's going to take to the streets again. Um, but something has been lost in the revolution. And I think they're str- still struggling to get it back. That was some. Alma El-Wadani and Carol Walker speaking to me earlier. You're listening to Monocle's House View on Monocle 24. Here in London, the London Design Festival is underway at the Victoria and Albert Museum and elsewhere. The festival debuted in 2003 and has grown ever since. Last year's attracted nearly 600,000 visitors. Monocle's design editor Nolan Giles has been among the visitors this year that said it would be weird if he hadn't, all things considered, given his job description. Um, Nolan, what have you seen so far that has impressed you? Well, I've been uh, making my way around the city on my bike, Andrew, because this event is uh, it's quite a sprawling one. It's uh, You mentioned the, the V&A, but actually, you know, that area and around the Brompton Design District is only a small part of it. Uh, it spans all the way, I guess, I guess, across to East London, to Shoreditch. And that's where I think the best part of London uh, Design Festival is, and it's uh, the rather confusingly called London Design Fair, which is part of London Design Festival. Uh, But it's basically a a showcase of uh, design talent from around the world. So it's quite an international mix there. And the other interesting thing for me is that most of the the talent on display there is fairly unheard of in the broader design world. So you can kind of discover uh, younger names from uh, you know, far-flung parts of the globe who are doing interesting things. I mean, the, the obvious point of comparison, I guess, is going to be Salone del Mobile in Milan. Uh, but, but where are the differences? Is that where uh, the London Design Festival sets itself apart, that it's maybe a bit more cutting edge, a bit less old school? Yeah, London Design Festival actually um, has a good point of difference in the way that uh, it's not as commercial as Milan Salone del Mobile. It's not emphasizing uh, big furniture companies and uh, big brands. Uh, Salone del Mobile these days is become a lot more than just furniture. It's become about, you know, big watch companies are there. Basically, everyone who is trying to use design uh, as a term to sell their products will do something at Milan and it's just uh, it can be too big and overwhelming. London is smaller but uh, because there's just such a huge concentration of design and creativity in this city there's a huge audience for it so you know like uh, architecture firms that might be practicing in London are also doing projects all around the world. Their interior designers, their architects, anyone that's commissioning furniture will be wandering around looking at these uh, pieces of design on display and good conversations are had. London being London, of course, it has the advantage that everybody from everywhere in the world is here already. And I know one one of the things that's impressed you so far uh, has been a showcase of industrial design from Uruguay. Yeah, and that was actually at London Design Fair. And I'd I'd never heard of uh, any of the names there. 
Uh, it was curated by a gentleman called Matteo Fagale. Hopefully I got the uh, pronunciation correct. And, um, I mean, he was able to, to bring these really talented uh, designers from Uruguay who were working with, you know, local manufacturing there, uh, working with manufacturers in nearby Brazil and, cre uh, sorry, creating a really kind of uh, solid body of work. Uh, and, you know, they're here, they're displaying their work here. Uh, we're interested in actually going over there now to, to create a story um, on this emerging scene in the city. So you just, even though it is in London, you you know, you discover things from all over the world. Uh, we should remind listeners that they haven't missed the boat just yet where London Design Festival is concerned. It does technically run until Sunday. Uh, if anybody tuning into this wants to get on their bike and go and see something before it's all over for another year, what would you recommend? Well, I haven't been yet, but I'm going to head over there this weekend too, so they might spot me on my bike but I've got a, <laughs> a couple of pictures for you here we've got a we've got a squirrel uh, clambering on uh, a piece of a see I can I can get this in my garden Nolan so so why would I be going all the way out to look at squirrels elsewhere so basically this is a, an exhibition by a designer called Marlene uh, Hussaud uh, and it's She's creating habitats for animals uh, via her design uh, know-how, but also imitating the way that animals actually create habitats themselves. So um, it's kind of drawing on biodegradable materials. It, it's showing that within our cities, we're able to create uh, spaces for animals too. And when we are thinking about how to design for animals, we should be thinking about how the animals actually design. So... Uh, quite strange to look at, but I'm uh, interested this, to see the this, squirrels and the bees and, and whatever you might find there. This genuinely looks really cool. She's. Uh, it's, it, this is difficult to communicate because we are looking at pictures here and communicating in an audio medium. But she has built, what would you call them, like, like weird kind of sculptures and gymnasiums out of nuts and branches and stuff for squirrels. I think that's a pretty accurate description there. Um, I, I'm impressed by this, and I suspect these squirrels in my garden would be as well, although I, I have a, a vague suspicion this might be a little bit beyond the budget of what I normally like to spend on wild rodents. Well, that's the point of going there, so you can get a bit of inspiration <laughs> and maybe try and create one yourself when you get home. Nolan Giles, thank you for joining us. The London Design Festival, as we've been saying, does continue until Sunday. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. Monocle's September issue is here, and we're getting busy in this bumper business edition. Before we get on with the job, we meet the new dean of New York's famed Parsons School of Design in the handsome surrounds of the Rose Reading Room in the city's public library. In affairs, we view the way to work through a diplomatic lens, joining the French ambassador to Italy to learn how to host 3,000 sharply dressed guests whilst showcasing the best assets of his nation, champagne and all. The business section is packed with insight from bright young entrepreneurs and seasoned CEOs alike. From a Spanish restaurateur with a new way of feeding customers to some bright new ideas on the four-day work week, we spin the globe and forecast the future of work. In culture, we put crowdfunding in the media to the test and find out what it takes for a new publication to stand out. Plus, we ask directors of some of the best museums how they manage. Then we retreat into the sun-soaked Californian countryside to relax in a modernist getaway that's been given a new lease of life. 
Our September issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Apple's flagship New York City store, the famous glass cube on Fifth Avenue, has been under wraps since 2017, undergoing a major refurbishment. The kind of people who queue overnight for minor upgrades to mass-produced consumer goods have had to pitch their sleeping bags next to a temporary arrangement next door. The doors of the new rebuilt Apple store, it is the work of Foster and Partners, have now been opened to a select group of invites among whom was Monocle's tech editor David Phelan, who joins me now. Uh, David, basically what has changed? It's sort of everything apart from that cube that you've just mentioned, (laughs) which is the the glass cube that sits uh, on the the ground floor. Everything else is subterranean. Uh, And what was a big underground store is now absolutely twice as big. And the the problem with being underground is getting light down in an elegant way. So what Foster and Partners have done is built 80 uh, sky lenses, they're called, uh, pavement lights, I suppose we'd call them in the UK, but huge circles that um, let a lot of light down. And then each of those rings has LEDs around it. And then the fabric that makes the ceiling has hidden LEDs, all of which change Uh, in concert with the light outside so that you never really feel uh, you're indoors even. It's got a a very spacious, airy feeling across the the whole huge store. In every Apple store in in which I've set foot, it's never been entirely clear to me anyway where the balance is between them trying to project an image, an idea of Apple, uh, and trying to provide an actually functional retail setup which enables you to take something off a shelf, go to a checkout and pay money for it. Um, Which of those do they appear to be emphasising here? That's a really good point. And I think definitely it's not the... I can sell you something part of the equation. It's very much the other end. In fact, Stefan Bailing from Foster and Partners was telling me yesterday that uh, he sees it as a civic gesture, this store, that it's a place you can go to, you can go inside, you can sit outside, there are trees outside, uh, or you can spend as much time as you want in there. And the other thing that they really uh, are keen on is this idea that one area of the store in front of a huge screen with lots of sort of square cubic seats uh, in it is a town hall where people can come and meet and they have sessions where they, this morning they did, uh, as the store opened finally to the public, they had uh, a session on uh, photographic tips and tricks. And of course, you can go and you can use the free Wi-Fi, you can uh, uh, check your email on their max and so on. Uh, So very much selling something is uh, on the back foot, although they are prepared to do that if you ask them. That All that said then, why do you think physical stores are still so important to Apple? And they clearly are, though Apple is probably less constrained than most entities that have ever existed by any worries about budget. They do operate some incredibly expensive rig-ups on some of the most expensive real estate on earth. Yes, that's absolutely right. And this is certainly part of that. It is a very sumptuous store and uh, in the center of it the way you get down into it is down a spiral staircase with these huge uh, stainless steel steps which are cantilevered out of the center of 
uh, a, a column. And again, the architect was keen to tell me that there are sketchbooks where Johnny Ive, the celebrated Apple designer who's just recently left, he was sketching each individual tread and the curves are Bezier curves of the kind that you will find all in every product. And as uh, Stefan Bailing said, there is a way that the store um, evokes the products without, you know, looking like an iPhone. But it's it's clear that they want this to be a, a very welcoming place. And the thing about Apple and indeed a lot of technology is that it can be a bit cold. So they've gone out of their way to make the lighting very warm, as I say, but also the, the warm uh, colors of the wooden tables uh, and the sort of warmish tint to the gray uh, tiles that are on the wall. So it's, again, as the architect said, it's all about how it makes you feel. And the idea is that it should make you feel good. Well, on the subject of the technology itself, this refurbishment does coincide more or less with the release of the iPhone 11. So far, at least, how is that being received? Today was the opening day of the store and it was the launch day for the iPhone 11, the new Apple Watch and so on. And this is certainly that I've been to a lot of these store openings on uh, launch days, and this is the first time in years I've seen queues like it. Um, as you say, the overnight queues are there. In the front of the queue is a guy who arrived at 6 p.m. last night, uh, an American marathon runner called Ryan, who'd added an extra five days to his stop after his last marathon before tomorrow when he goes to Philadelphia to run again so that he could be the first in line to uh, to receive all the adulation and applause and whoops from the hundreds and hundreds of store staff. So it, obviously it's not all just about Ryan, but the uh, initial reaction seems to be that the latest iPhones have really caught the imagination and that the cues for people eager to pick up the one they've reserved or just get in line to buy the one they want are longer than they have been for years. That was David Phelan in New York, and that is all for today's show. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu with Marcus Hippie and Monocle's House View returns tomorrow, so listen out for that. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Music.